Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We have talked about President Trump's what he calls his biggest trade negotiation achievement to date, which is the USMCA, that is the new NAFTA. Uh, But interestingly, the largest federation of unions in the United States is going to uh, oppose this deal if there is an early vote called. Joining us now to talk about that and in general uh, about the backdrop for labor is Richard Trumka, president of the AFL-CIO. Thank you so much much for being with us. So let's start with the USMCA trade agreement. Why won't the AFL-CIO support this uh, this treaty if an early vote is pursued? Well, first of all, the labor movement is committed to ensuring that trade union deals benefit working people. Uh, that requires you have strong labor provisions and strong enforcement provisions. In order for this to work, Mexico has to abandon its low-wage model. Uh, And it requires Mexico to change its laws, enforce its laws, and then have the resources necessary and the will necessary to do that. If we're forced to uh, vote on on the new NAFTA before they have changed their laws, effectively put them in place, and started to enforce them, we would have no choice but to impose them because the old system, the old low-wage model of that sucks jobs out of the United States would remain in place. So the agreement itself says they have to be in place first. We don't want a premature vote. If we're forced to, we would have to oppose at that point. So, Richard, you you talk about greater enforcement. Does that mean that the negotiations uh, of the agreement need to be opened back up? uh, There are a number of ways to do enforcement. In fact, the agreement so far, uh, Paul, could be looked at as having less enforcement than previous agreements, and here's how. Uh, under the current system, you, when a, two countries have a dispute, they impanel, they go to a mechanism that they go through, they try to solve it. If they can't, they, they put together a panel. That panel acts like an arbitrator. That arbitrator makes a decision that is binding on them. The new law, the new negotiated one, abandons those panels. Either party has the ability to block the impaneling of those of the panel, and therefore block any mechanism. There's no no way to enforce the act at that point or the trade agreement at that point. So it has to be changed. You can do some of it in the implementing language, uh, and we've been told a lot of that will be done, although we haven't seen it yet uh, to be able to evaluate it. If it isn't it isn't done, it isn't changed, uh, and and the ability to enforce the agreement isn't there. It's a useless agreement. And it'll actually be worse than the current one do we have. Richard Trumka, from your perspective as representing uh, thousands of workers out there, do you think President Trump's policies have been good in general for them? You know, if you look at things uh, objectively, some of the stuff he's done, uh, you could say that he's made a, a lot of our members' lives harder. Uh, you know, he denied paychecks to 40% of the federal workforce while he made them work. Uh, he jammed through a uh, corporate tax cut on the backs of working people that encourages further outsourcing uh, and automation. Uh, if you look at that, he's made our, our pockets lighter. Uh, he just changed the rule 
that took overtime away from over 2 million people. Uh, and he's made our jobs uh, more dangerous. He slashed the number of safety regulations. He slashed the number of OSHA inspectors. Just last month, he gutted the rule requiring employers to submit detailed reports on all workplace injuries. Uh, and so you can make the case that workers along those lines are worse off. Well, how about Richard, as it relates to China, are you satisfied with the president's trade stance towards China or do you have any concerns? Well, you know, first of all, I applaud the president for being willing to take trade on and actually uh, talk about changing NAFTA. That, that's an important step. So I, I give him credit for that. I also give him credit for, for looking at China. Uh, at, you know, trade relationships are an opportunity really to strengthen democracies, to stimulate economies and to uplift the well-being of people here and around the world. But they can also be used the other way, to harm people and to undermine those rights. Uh, and right now, China has been doing that. We have the worst deficit, the largest deficit we've ever had in the world, uh, $419 billion in growing. Uh, and so looking at that relationship, trying to change it is very, very important. Uh, and we'll continue to work with the administration to try to make sure that that relationship gets righted, because currently it's off course. Richard, a lot of people say there has been too much emphasis placed on trade as the uh, sort of villain here in terms of people losing their jobs, and that really the issue is automation. Uh, the lot of jobs previously uh, that were unionized and uh, and that, that gave people decent salaries are now eliminated through automation. How are you, as the head of the AFL-CIO, addressing that? Well, we have a committee on the future of work uh, that looks at not only automation, but artificial intelligence, robotics, and everything else that goes along with it, uh, changing our, our ways. But you have to understand one thing. Uh, I don't accept your original premise, because by design, NAFTA distorted the power relationships in favor of global employers over workers. It weakened workers' bargaining power, and it encouraged the deindustrialization uh, of the U.S. economy. Uh, those that caused wage stagnation that continues to this very day. It's a tandem. You, you can't just say it's only trade, but trade is a significant portion uh, of wage stagnation and job loss. Automation actually can be a job creator in the future if we do things right. We're changing our apprentice programs to train our people, uh, our members, uh, for the jobs of the future. We're working with universities uh, like Carnegie Mellon and MIT, the leaders in artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, and, and new the, thing, the jobs of the future to get in front of that curve so that we figure out how those things affect people. It, here's a simple question, Lisa. Uh, right now, we have a, a system that is leaving more and more and more people behind, inequalities growing. Uh, artificial intelligence robotics, all the automation, all of those things can accelerate that process if it's not done right. And what happens when a system no longer can provide a rising standard of living for a majority of its citizens, a growing majority of its citizens? What happens to that system? It's actually a threat uh, to democracy itself. And so we're trying to get in front of it, harness it, and make sure that communities People in the community benefit from automation and not just a very few people at the very top.
Richard Trumka, thank you so much. Uh, Richard Trumka, president of the AFL-CIO based in Washington, D.C., joining us to discuss the new NAFTA, uh, which is winding its way through the congressional approval process. The U.S. Treasury curve today inverts for the first time since 2007. The move follows Fed policy shift earlier in the week, as well as gloomier economic data, particularly out of Europe today. To help us kind of wind through this issue, we have Matt Egan. Matt is a portfolio manager and co-head of the full discretion team at Loomis Sales and Company. It's based in Boston, but Matt joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Matt, welcome uh, to Bloomberg. Thank you. What do you make of this yield curve news today? bit surprising to me. I think there's a lot of pessimism built into the yield curve. Um, you know, clearly the data has been weak. Um, and, you know, it's definitely been centered in the manufacturing side of the of the uh, global economy. And I guess in some ways, it's not too surprising because there's been a lot of distortions thrown into that side of the economy through the trade war that began last year. And it's not surprising that it's affecting places like uh, Germany, uh, you know, more because they feed into that, you know, that manufacturing cycle on the earliest stages. So what does it say to you that the fact that the Fed is holding off on rate hikes is not enough to give people a boost in terms of their longer inflation expectations and their longer term growth expectations? It, this is really fascinating. And I think the, the Fed is um, paying closer attention to this or opening this up for broader dialogue. And I was um, watching, I mean, everybody probably pays attention to the Monetary Policy Forum in February, right? Everybody's got that on their calendar, but it came out. My nine-year-old has that on his <laughs> calendar. So, uh, but I think what was interesting is they came out pretty forcefully and were talking about, hey, we're going to really take a look at our monetary policy and our ability to both fight recessions and drive uh, inflation. And they started talking about, uh, you know, concepts like average inflation targeting. And I think that there's a good chance over the next year or so where they some, somehow adopt some formal policy revolving around that. To, because I think, I mean, to a certain extent, this is what their MO has been, right? They've been going lower for longer, trying to get inflation up. They've talked about it. In some ways, you could say uh, they haven't been successful. It's been a failure. And so I think they're, they're sensitive to that. And, um, you know, it's an open question whether a central bank can really drive up inflation or not. I mean, Japan has been trying to do this for years. Uh, so, but they, there's a feeling that they have to do something. And I think that it, it has broader implications though. Well, I'm no, I'm no fixed income expert like Lisa. However, I do know that an inverted yield curve oftentimes suggests a recession. Do you think that now is a higher probability than maybe three to six months ago? It is certainly a higher probability. I, I think that the uh, inversion of the yield curve means less than it used to what it, when, it, when it was in um, what it would mean before, I think, uh, because of the unusual nature of monetary policy and how it's being affected. Uh, but relative to, say, three or four months ago, it's clearly that you know the probability of recession has risen. I personally think that if I had to guess the net, next rate hike, it's going to be up rather than down. 
uh, because I think this is similar to 2015-16, a mid-cycle correction. Uh, it's mainly coming through the inventory channels. And, you know, this may be a leap, but I think we're going to see it bottoming here. Problem with that is the market is looking at the data and hasn't inflected up yet. And that's that's disconcerting. So uh, as a fixed income investor, is this a good time to go into riskier corporate debt, considering the fact that the Fed is backstopping the market and that you think that there's over uh, that there's too much pessimism baked into the into, into markets right now? I do. I, I think that there is too much pessimism baked into concerns about the economy. I think uh, my my uh, mantra recently has been bad news is good news for risky assets to the extent that it keeps central bankers on the sidelines. And that still holds true even today, even given how much stimulus and how long there already has been zero rates. It, it holds true today. Uh, and and I think, um, you know, when, when you think of what usually would drive uh, a recession or, or an unwind and say the, the credit market, we'll talk about high yield and things like that, it's usually the Fed raining on everybody's parade, right? Tightening policy. And they're far from, I mean, it depends on, you know, how you perceive that. But I would say they are certainly not tight. And so I think that based on the way the Fed is kind of approaching things, this new regime in central bank monetary policy, you know, being so close to the zero, zero lower bound, the surprise might be that the expansion lasts longer than people, it, people really think it, think it can. So it, it, just between investment grade and high yield, just right now, how, how are you allocated? So I'm pretty sanguine on, on high yield. You know, what, fundamentally what drives high yield risk premiums is default risk through the cycle. And as far as we can look at, uh, look out into the future over the next 12 months or so, defaults are going to stay low. Yeah. And spread, you know, it's surprising. Like even though spreads seem tight, they're right on the screws for where they should be in terms of the premium that you should earn. Matt Egan, we continue uh, we, to listen to your conversation. We're excited to continue to listen to your conversation on Real Yield, uh, the Bloomberg Television Show today at 12.30 Eastern time uh, later today. Matt Egan, Portfolio Manager and Co-Head of Loomis Sales, Full Discretion Team. Uh, really interesting to get some perspective. Perhaps there is too much pessimism baked into markets at a time when there really isn't an evidence uh, that we're super close to a recession or an uptick in, uh, in defaults. The pain just continues in Germany's manufacturing sector. Really disappointing data today, uh, which is sending bond yields lower across the world. German bond yields uh, maturing in 10 years. Yields now negative for the first time since 2016. Joining us now to discuss uh, is Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering the European markets, joining us from our London studios. So Marcus, just give us a sense of why this particular data uh, point was so important for markets. Well, in some senses, I'm not sure it's quite as uh, interesting as perhaps uh, people think it is, because this is a continuation of a trend uh, when a trend was expected to reverse. In a sense, it's surprising because people thought we'd seen the bottom or are close to the bottom. The signs out of China, signs out of other, other uh, aspects, indeed services and, and wages, which would suggest the German economy is doing pretty well. Um and that the whole bad news from last year of the diesel emissions, the Rhine level being too low, and again, indeed China, had sort of played out. 
So it is disappointing, um, but then sentiment is sentiment. And this, at the end of the day, this is what it is. It's a purchasing manager's survey. It's an expectation. Um, what's slightly more concerning is that, that, that France has reversed. Uh, but services aren't doing too badly, uh, which is the larger share of the economy. So I think what everyone's realized is that everyone was hoping and banking on this. And we've had a bit of a spit the dummy moment where everyone's gone, bunt yields won't go below zero, will they? And everyone's sort of reversed. We've also got this China-Italy uh, talks going on at the moment. That's causing a few bits of, of nervousness. And, and much more importantly, actually, is look to the States, look to the US. The US yields are dropping, and therefore there's less excuse to defend, even indeed people were, that level of, of positive 10-year bunt yield. So the combination of all this, I wouldn't read too much into that one particular number, is what I'm saying. I think the US move is probably here actually more important. So, Marcus, you mentioned uh, France. Just give us an update what's going on there, because it is not just Germany. No. Um, well, France has had uh, this gilet jaune, this yellow vest uh, problem, should we say, which has morphed into more of a problem. It's become, it's got out of hand. It's turning into much more of a left-wing than allegedly initially right-wing movement. But the point is, is it, it's not going away. And we have ongoing, every weekend... We have uh, real problems here, and it's really hitting confidence in France, and and clearly also France, which is much far less dependent on China per se. It's very simplistic to say that Germany's dependent on China, but certainly they're less uh, dependent, and they are you know looking at different areas, and therefore we're showing this is the global manufacturing slowdown is not backing away. Both France and Germany are very reliant on orders uh, for their manufacturing across the world. And it's a sign that uh, growth everywhere is dipping. And that, that perhaps has surprised people because people had expected a bit of a bounce this month and doesn't look like we're getting it. Just what yet, is, anyway. What does this mean for the ECB? Can they raise rates ever again? Oh. <laughs> if you speak to anyone, highly so, I mean, I used to work with you. And we know, I always used to say to you that, that the ECB will never raise rates in my lifetime. And it's, certainly... You still think I, so? I, I'm talking about my children's or possibly my grandchildren's lifetime now. <laughs> so, you know... No, of course they can't. And the thing is, they try, bless them, to stop quantitative easing uh, with all the right reasons just a year too late. They'd done it in 2017. Everyone had sort of backed it, but they waited because everything has to pan out. By the time they waited, the cycle had turned, and uh, they're looking rather foolish at the moment. The point is that they also try to preempt by getting some extra cheap uh, bank funding, but then they the mood the mood music that go that the rate's going to raise as much as 40, maybe even 50 basis points where banks funded themselves previously and that had the reverse effect. So they tried to be dovish and end up being uh, having the reverse effect. So they are stumped. But look, the reason why we're still debating this is because the ECB is not the problem. It's a lack of fiscal response in Europe. The monetary response is played out. They try to tighten or, or stop being so dovish is the correct way of putting it. And still they have to keep on pumping money in the banks, pumping money everywhere. You know, they haven't got rid of their problems. They didn't do TARP or TELF or a whole raft of different things, and, and they're left as bad as they were five years ago. So, Marcus, let's just stay in Germany for a moment real quickly. What's the latest on Deutsche Bank? I know they're out with some news <laughs> saying, hey, we're going to start growing again. But really, I think, what's going on there? And is it the commerce deal almost a fait accompli? Uh, you know, it is. And and this is this is what uh, funny is not the right, right, right word here because it's very unfunny. But, you know, Ireland essentially got bankrupted by the sense that they had to collapse their banks. Greece, likewise. Cyprus, likewise. Italy, clearly ongoing. And yet it seems Germany, when it comes to Germany, they can they can bail out their own two banks. These are 
two drunks being lashed together to try and stay standing, <laughs> and 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 it's not a good uh, not a good look. And I think that the, you know Deutsche Bank has got a whole world of level three as an unmarked, remarkable assets and a vast derivative book, which is beyond the size of all comprehension. Comets Bank has got huge positions in Italian bonds, uh, and are, and both of them have got a over-competitive banking market, domestic, too many branches, too much staff, not enough capital, no chance of making, and the key word here is profit, ever on their business models. And lump, lump them together, yes, they keep going for a bit longer, but it doesn't solve anyone's problems. Wow, that is a a stark uh, review of German banking, but uh, you know I think it's probably pretty spot on because I think and not and shared by many people and shared by many people. It's uh, you know you put two bad banks together, what do you have? Maybe you know one bigger uh, bad bank. Well, there was a conference earlier this week in Boston, Massachusetts, not an investor conference per se, but a conference entitled Inside Quantum Technologies. This is the first conference dedicated to the business of quantum computing, quantum cryptography, and quantum sensors. To get a sense of all that quantum stuff, what all that stuff means, let's welcome our our guest, Alan Meckler. Alan is a managing partner of Asimov uh, Ventures. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Alan, thank you so much. Can you just define briefly what quantum technology is for for me at least and our, I think our audience? <laughs> that that's actually quite hard to do <laughs> in a few words. Okay. I, I first of all, I'm not a scientist uh, or a technologist. I've just been good at spotting uh, uh, trends and doing shows on them. But essentially, if you, th- you a lot of people, I'm sure on the and listening, have heard of supercomputing, and uh, this would. Uh, quantum computing would make supercomputing look like the Stone Age in terms of the speed and the rapidity of uh, and, 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 the, and the depth of, of, of what it can solve. And um, it, it, it has huge ramifications for all kinds of security, cybersecurity, uh, and the threat to being able, if and getting into the wrong hands, being able to open up bank accounts and all kinds of things. All right, so let's talk about some of the practical applications of this incredibly abstract uh, concept because there are incredibly practical uh, applications from 3D printing to some of the pharmaceutical advancements. I want to talk about uh, 3D printing in particular because a lot of people were expecting that everyone would have a 3D printer in their home. They would print their chocolate bars. They would print their chairs. They would print their uh, you know tables. How much has 3D printing actually gained traction and where? 3D printing is most, is most significant in, uh, in actual manufacturing. Uh, there was a theory, and uh, a lot of companies went out of business, that there would be a 3D printer in every home, maybe up through 2015 or 16. But the, the, the real benefit of it is, and, and, and the real power, and, and where the money's being made is uh, very expensive 3D printers, several hundred thousand to a million dollars, that uh, print in metals and, 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 and uh, other materials but are revolutionizing the way certain types of manufacturing uh, are taking place. For example, uh, probably within four or five years, 50% of every jet engine will be 3D printed. There are a lot of reasons we could go into why that is, but uh, you can make it more efficiently, you can make it lighter, you can make it faster and less expensively than traditional manufacturing ways. So when we talk about some of the practical applications of quantum computing and technologies, what are some of the techno- who are some of the technology companies that are really leading the way here? What are some names? 
Again, uh, it's very important uh, for listeners to know that there is no such thing yet as a quantum computer. And uh, there's a new term that I think you're going to hear pretty soon called uh, uh, y Y2Q, if you remember Y2K, Y2K which right. is years to quantum. And we're probably uh, t a 10-year countdown to getting quantum computers. There is a company called D-Wave that has a version of a quantum computer. But... Um, uh, at, at the show we just had inside quantum technology in Boston, we had many speakers. We had 32, but for example, IBM has now something called IBM Q. They've set up a whole division just to delve into uh, being hopefully one of the big players. Uh, Microsoft was there too, and they've set up their own initiative, and uh, their speaker who is in charge of business development for uh, quantum computing, a fellow named Ben Porter, he was saying that they're going to concentrate on AI, uh, financial services, and chemistry, and, and they're linking up with a whole bunch of uh, uh, universities. A lot of the research, much like my early days in the Internet, is coming out of uh, research uh, at, at universities because, again, it's not a uh, consumer product. The other really key issue is uh, security and uh, it's a shame what's happening that the United States is going to be taking a back seat to the Chinese. <clears throat> the Chinese are building a facility right now in China. They're spending $10 billion on it just to uh, study this. That's actually exactly where I wanted to go, which is uh, what some of the challenges are in this race to develop technology that most people uh, agree would be the future. And I'm wondering, when we talk with executives, they often talk about a lack of, uh, of of people who are trained in the right things. And I'm wondering how much, you know, some of the uh, executives in attendance at your conference talked about that. Are there enough people in the United States who are, uh, who you can hire to do these things, to develop these programs? Well, there's, uh, there is a, a quantum uh, a national uh, initiative that I think actually the Hudson Institute came up with, which the government, our government has endorsed. But right now, my understanding is the, the U.S. is uh, spending, you know, maybe about a, a billion dollars uh, a year uh, in, in all forms in developing quantum computing. The Chinese are spending over $5 billion, and then they're also doing a $10 billion uh, center. Okay, so let's say the United States decided to put more money into quantum computing. Which areas would you think would be the best areas for those investments? Well, f one area for sure is, is uh, the military. Um, it's very important. The Chinese actually have a quantum mechanic uh, uh, satellite that everyone said couldn't be done, but it's out, it's out there right now, and we don't have enough time to talk about uh, what it does. Uh, I don't personally know everything that it does, but it's very significant uh, how they're using it in their country and how, how, how they're planning. Uh, the other is uh, protection for the future. Uh, we're, we're, all, we're going to have what we call uh, quantum networks. Uh, your cell phones, er everything is going to be uh, the quantum internet. So everything will be much faster. Uh, there's going to be, again, this uh, situation like Y2K where we're going to have to have this amazing changeover. And then the security for, for all the financial institutions is going to be threatened. Now, that doesn't mean that someone couldn't counter that uh, if you were at a bank or, or whatever. But I still think that in this country and at the financial institutions and the government, they're, they're really not focusing on something that is going to be a critical problem. Alan Meckler, thank you so much for being with us.
A pleasure Thank speaking you. with you. Alan Meckler, managing partner at Asimov Ventures, based in New York and Seattle, uh, talking about the Inside Quantum Technology Conference that just took place in Boston. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.